Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Josh Cohen, who is a literary critic and a psychoanalyst whose book is called Not Working, Why We Have to Stop. And it's a kind of very thoughtful blend of memoir and literary analysis and literary history and psychoanalytic theory about work. Why we're doing too much of it and why when we're not doing it, we're not not doing it right, if I hope that's a rough, roughly fair summation. Josh, can you sort of start by talking a bit about the germ of this book? Because it feels like it could have come out of your experience in the consulting room or it could have come out of, you know, your, your own experience of staring out of the window. What's the... Yeah, I think there are a number of different sources. And actually, I think the first one, which I suppose is nicely consonant with the way that a book coming out of psychoanalysis should be is probably my childhood where really my abiding memory is of being told perpetually in the home and particularly at school that I was hopelessly dreamy sluggish and sort of unavailable to the call of urgency I remember particularly memorably one report telling my parents that I had no sense of urgency and I think it's that sense of being persecuted really by a regime that seemed to assume that very quick almost stimulus response to whatever was being asked of you a kind of short circuit of thinking of reflection of anything that might stand in the way of the request and its execution was, if not outlawed, then then certainly disapproved of. And that seemed to me to run against the grain of really who I was, without, of course, being able to articulate it that clearly to myself. But you describe in your introduction how, you know, in, as your clients come in, mm. very often... You're seeing that they're anxious about work, they're defining themselves through work, but also that, you know, the, the consulting room becomes a sort of tentatively safe, you know, retreat from that. Yes, that's right. It, it is, that, that is the more immediate trigger, really, for this book. I was thinking to myself about what are the big currents, the big themes that are coursing through the consulting room from day to day. And I noticed that it had something to do with a sense not just of being overworked in the sense of the workplace taking over, but more generally a sort of a sense of the whole self being overworked, the whole psyche being assailed, if not by the demands of work, then by the demands of various different distractions. Obviously, it's hard to talk about this without immediately appealing to social media. And indeed, the distractions and demands of social media really do often intrude into the session. And of course, this is something new because it's really in the course of my training, I suppose, that social media media became a kind of entrenched feature of social and cultural and personal lives. So that sense that the mind is always being put to work means increasingly that if there is an 
hour or even a moment in the day that isn't spoken for, an anxious relationship develops to it. Not just guilt, which is sort of, I suppose, the more common psychoanalytic emotion, but what I call in the book is a sort of a feeling of inadequacy, a shame which is different to guilt because it, it signifies something more along the lines of I could be doing, I could be really great, I could be doing something so much better, I could be more efficient, I could be more dynamic, I could be achieving and attaining and acquiring more. And it's that relationship of inadequacy to some punishing ideal that I, I noticed was different from the way that a different generation, of a previous generation of psychoanalysts would have spoken in terms more of guilt, in terms of doing things that you're not supposed to be doing. Now it's not doing things that you could be doing. And, and I think that that refers not only to a sort of unconscious internalisation of something in the family or in the more immediate circle of a patient, but in the culture more broadly. One of the sort of, to me, very interesting things about the book is that you... It's not as simple as a sort of dichotomy that you draw between working and not working. You're sort of arguing that there are, there are kind of work-like characteristics to what we're doing when we're not working in a way that we distract ourselves from work. I mean, social media is a good example, but, you know, leisure looks a lot like work. Yes. It's very um, task-oriented. And exactly. And that's a really important aspect of the book, and I suppose one of the more difficult to to put across because immediately you call a book not working you know sort of the 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 question comes back what so we should just drop everything and stop and 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 fall into bed i mean it's an idea that is explored in the book at various points but it's it's certainly not a proposition that i'm seriously putting forward i'm interested in the impulse to drop everything and go to bed i'm not actually interested in it as a kind of I don't know, antisocial program. I don't think it would get very far. I, I, I don't think, although you never know these days, uh, I could get quite a good viral media campaign going for it. Um, but work and non-work tends to be thought of in terms of a binary. And what I'm trying to do in both directions is to show that aspects of non-work can actually take on the characteristics and the features of work. And that actually what we think of as work we can be quite rigid in our sense of what it is and that there are many forms of work that that might feel and certainly look more like non-work so on the one side non-work leisure activity i think the more it gets regimented the more we try to legislate for what it should be the more work like it becomes sometimes with a kind of wonderfully ironic quality to it. So you find that a lot of corporate workplaces try to incorporate something like a mindfulness session into a lunch break or some other hour of the day. And, of course, when mindfulness is scheduled, it immediately becomes a kind of performative contradiction. How do you schedule and sort of demand of somebody that they live in the present moment when actually it becomes a kind of future-oriented task. You know, by the time this hour is up, I will have been mindful. And 
it sets up a rather anxious relationship to the task, as task orientation tends to do, because you're under pressure to do something. In certain contexts, that that works, but in the context of leisure, it's sort of perilously close to self-satirizing, because the very thing that's supposed to take you out of the loop of anxious overwork actually puts you back in it. There's also a sort of, I mean, there's obviously history to this that you go into, mm. but you know, why do you think, you, know, you said you think that now what you describe is, you know, that it's a sort of a new thing. Mm. That it, and, what I mean, we you go back and you touch, obviously, on the great touchstone for this, Max Weber, and yeah. the idea that the Protestant era, of, you know, post-Reformation, we started to kind of sacralise work, mm. that what you did became your identity rather than something you did as a sort of instrumental way of earning a living. Mm. But... It feels to me like you're talking about something more recent than that. Yeah, certainly a kind of hypertrophy of the Weber idea. The, the Weber idea itself feels quite extreme in the sense that it is a sacralization of work. But it, it's a sacralization of work that does mark it off from other aspects of life, every, other aspects of the day. What Weber does do, of course, is he uses this word vocation, calling, to suggest that there is a fundamental link between identity and work, so that work is no longer what one does in order to sustain the means of living, but in some sense it is living. It is who we are. So, you know, you have there in the sort of in the bowels of the 17th century, you have the origin of the great sort of tedious icebreaker at the party, what do you do? You know, it's it's a Weberian question in the sense that it says, well, you if I want to know who you are, then I start from the question of work. But that requires you still to define it against a sphere of, of non-work, which might be given over to prayer or to community or to some region of life which isn't given over to accumulation and to to labor now what i think you know the the following that the 300 years that follow do is they increasingly sort of look for those spots of everyday time that are unclaimed and find some way to claim them and i think in that sense what we've got now is a kind of critical mass where we don't really have any space left that's unclaimed. And even what we think of as unclaimed space is is actually filled in by all kinds of leisure activities, which we feel sometimes a tacit coercion and sometimes a kind of direct coercion to be involved in. Yeah. I mean, is, is one of the solutions to this, which I'm being very kind of... In- Transport. When I read in the French theorist Michel de Certeau's mm. practice of everyday life, his suggestion of the idea of la perruque, which he was what he decided was the idea was basically dossing off on the job. Yeah. You took your employer's time, you took the space and the structure and the oppressive thing of work, and you kind of had a cheeky fag break when you weren't supposed to. Or, I mean, you put it in a more elevated way. Than yes. that. Um, but, <laughs> but the idea of sort of recapturing you know, leisure from work itself rather than trying to delineate it. Does the Yeah, I, I like the irreverence of the disserter approach. I think that in, in some ways, of course, whenever we try and sort of 
skim off of politics from uh, a previous generation, we run into the kinds of changes. So it's very, it's very difficult for anybody in this sort of new precarious warehouse labour because they're constantly monitored in all kinds of ways or in call centres. Their performance is constantly monitored. That kind of slacking off has become very difficult to sustain without putting your employment in danger. So that idea that you can steal non-work from work I think will become increasingly difficult. On the other hand, automation I think is soon going to mean that very few of us have to choose between working hard or slacking off because the job will be done by something else. And so the question for us will be more, what do we do with all this unclaimed time? What will be the meaning of our lives? So it's a a kind of very strange predicament we've got ourselves into where we're facing an abyss where many of us actually may be put out of a job, may no longer be able to define ourselves in terms of work. And yet we're at a point where our culture wants more than ever to define us in terms of work. Do you think you can get away from that completely? I mean, you're a Freudian and one of the you know, few things that almost everybody knows about Freud is that he's supposed to have said that the only two things you need are work and love. You know, I mean, yeah. he clearly thought that work was pretty important to the human identity. He certainly did, yeah. Although, like every interesting, passionate lover of a particular object, he was also very percipient about it. And he saw that the importance of work was in many ways very paradoxical. You know, he notices in civilization and its discontents in one of his wonderful footnotes where so much of the action happens he says you know that work in theory is a fantastic solution to you know the competing claims of you know one's own desires and and the demands of the world around us the trouble is we seem not to like it and he seems he he just records his perplexity about this you know if people could just let themselves like work as much as i love it then we'd be out of this predicament but instead he says most people seem to have an aversion to work and he becomes then very interested by the different ways in which we fall into inertia. And he says the basic problem with the human being is that we don't like change and growth. Right? This is one of the great insights, I suppose, of, of psychoanalysis and why the answer to the sort of the famous question as to why psychoanalysis has to take so long. You know, if we all enjoyed changing and doing things completely differently and we weren't attached to the ways in which we thought and felt and acted then we could all we we could do it in two or three weeks i know much cheaper and much you'd all be out of the job absolutely much more efficient yeah but you know i'm I'm sure we'd be delighted we'd find (laughs) find something else to do um or nothing to do but he says we don't want to give up an old position for a new one and it's a wonderful phrase because Partly it comes, I mean, he, he actually lifts that, that sentence from a discussion of perversion in an earlier book. He says, you know, the, the pervert's problem is that, you know, they're, they're fixated on a particular kind of practice or fascination and they don't want to give that up and move on to something else. 
And so in a way, that's where you get this extension of the word perversity from its the, the kind of localized sexual sense to a sort of general feature of the human being, that it is, you know, one element of the perversity of the human being that we don't really like to give up old positions for new ones. There was something interesting you said there which touched on what seemed to me another big theme of your book about that Freud said, you know, work was a good way of mediating between the desires of the individual and the demands of the group. Mm. And it seems to me sort of, in a way, what a lot of what you're writing about here is not actually to do with whether or not you're working or not working, but to do with the idea of finding a sort of space for a sort of self-reflection or self-examination mm. or a kind of individual, you know, again, on the issue of identity, you know, that work is, as you say, what mediates between the individual and the group. And if if you don't have that, I mean, it seems weirdly paradoxical that, of course, you know, you define your identity by work, and yet it's a it's what, in some way, threatens your ability to mm. examine yourself. Yes, yes. Is there then a kind of a form of work, or are there forms of work that would allow for the cultivation of that kind of individual perspective instead of the sort of the rule of compliance, of accommodation of the individual to a kind of collective rhythm. I suppose if you look at, say, factory work, assembly line work, that is the most sort of direct and explicit example of the rhythms of the individual being completely subjected to a a kind of overarching imposed rhythm from above. And you know, at the other end, the much more privileged end of the spectrum, something like the kind of work that I'm lucky enough to do, really work is bound up with finding enough space in oneself to reflect and to turn things over and to pause and to sort of take care over one, what one is doing and saying. To, to be really curious about it and attentive to it. I think probably that the heroes of the book are those that try to imagine a world in which more and more of that was possible. So Oscar Wilde in The Soul of Man Under Socialism. If you look at that vision of a society in which all work is done by machines so that human creativity can be liberated to do and produce what it wants you could say that you know if you if you took it seriously as a program you could say it's it's you know ludicrously naive and unrealistic but on the other hand if you take it as a statement about what we should most value in human experience it's an essay that that sort of rewards revisiting all the time because what it's trying to tell us is that the end of any kind of work shouldn't be accumulation or achievement of a task for its own sake but the cultivation of the human personality that in a way that's that's the sort of unacknowledged ideal for life that, well, that's sort of been on a bit cut away by, by modern um, working culture. There's a sense in which, you know, the particular moment we're in in modernity has kind of colonised what used to be the other side of things and that work used to be something where 
you know, work was to produce things, and your ego ideal was to produce things well. But, you know, what sometimes gets called late capitalism has made consumption an important part of work as well, and that self-realisation becomes, you know, that ego ideal, you know, are you thin enough, are you, have you got enough good stuff? Yeah, yeah. And that that's sort of our, le- our leisure time, you know, like a sort of tar baby, this kind of work ethic has... Yeah, has, has, has taken over the uh, part of the day and of the self that might have been given over to self-discovery. I, I think what makes it seem most like work, that sort of portion of us that's now given over to consumption of various kinds, not just shopping, but in a way sort of shopping for different forms of selfhood you know on on social media in particular kind of what should i be more like self-discovery is being mediated increasingly through messages about who we should be and could be if you take the sort of perennial example of the teenager in their you know evil smelling bedroom the the value of that space is its solitude its sense that it is sealed off from the influences and the currents of the outside world so that there's a space for communing with one's own desire and we use sort of feel that that was once what adolescence was about Now the adolescent bedroom is more a kind of laboratory in which all of these different forces and influences come in and mix themselves in in all kinds of, you know, nefarious, interesting formulas. And they have to be... Even more powerful than the old Che Guevara poster. I I would have thought more more powerful than Che Guevara poster, which at least you could sort of have the illusion of having chosen for yourself. At least that, that feels like you know, the, the expression of an impulse of one kind or another that was yours. Now it feels like the question that's being chased all the time is, what am I supposed to think? One can, of course, exaggerate the change. And, I mean, ever, ever since we, we believed in this, you know, this, this uh, stage of life called adolescence, it's always been assailed by this anxiety about whether it's doing things right and, you know, it's always indulged in kind of mimicry. So I, I don't want to, to, to talk about an absolute break, but I would also appeal to experience to say that, that, that in my adolescence, I find it very, you know, uh, to, to recognise the kinds of adolescences that I'm seeing today, which seem to be so mired in anxiety about what everyone else wants me to be. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the heroes you've chosen or Mm. you've got the sort of case studies because you divide the sort of refuseniks, if you like, into four categories, the burnout, the slob, the daydreamer, and the slacker. And it should be said the examples you choose from each, well, they're all artists, which makes them a special case. They also, it's hard not to notice they're also all fantastically ridiculously hard working in yeah. the sense you know David Foster Wallace who in Dan Max's biography is at one point recorded as writing 25,000 words a day when he's working on Infinite Jest <laughs> yeah, yeah. not sure that's physically possible no, you know no. Orson Welles who mm. I think Simon Callow said something about his just the sheer metrics of his yeah. productivity were kind of yeah. staggering and yeah that's right know, um, yeah Emily Dickinson wrote a lot 
Um, I mean, Dickens wrote a lot, although she's she's a minnow in terms of in terms of the others. But yes, she she uh, produced a trove of you know some some two thousand poems. And I'm trying to remember who the fourth one is. Warhol. Who, Warhol, who, of course, who was astonishingly productive himself. Yeah. You know. yeah. And uh, is it a deliberate actually, paradox in choosing those characters? It is a very deliberate paradox. Um, I mean, Warhol, of course, was a kind of evangelist for work, and you know, in the Warhol, I mean, Lou Reed talks about how you know if he told Andy that he wrote 12 songs that day, then the answer was one you write for. That's a song called Work. Yeah, song it's a song called Work, exactly, yeah. You know, he was almost moralised, well, not almost, he was moralising about his own work ethic and expected others to um, to follow suit. What I think is interesting about all of these four is that they came through the root of work, maybe overwork, prolificity, productivity, to mobilise a kind of inertia, a kind of inactivity. Now, it's true that they used inactivity, and when you use inactivity, in a certain way, it's no longer inactive. On the other hand, what I find so interesting about them is that they didn't sort of use their inactivity in order to transform it into something else, into something that was usable and dynamic and exciting. Instead, they were each in their own way interested in these inactive states. And these became in many ways the substance of their work. Warhol is probably the most obvious example, partly because one of his greatest artworks was his own very carefully and painstakingly cultivated persona of indifference and and lethargy and this was sort of expressed across of course his visual artwork and his writings he was always trying to cultivate an aesthetic of flatness and interchangeability Um, he famously says in his philosophy of Andy Warhol that it would be much better if all paintings were the same size shape and colour So in Wells, this sort of manic, completely unfeasible prolificity goes hand in hand with a kind of also equally unfeasible kind of excess in living. You know, you you don't quite know how he got through so many sexual partners or through so many meals or through so many sort of foreign journeys you know going through any sexual partners by the end of him I mean, yes that's right yeah, 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 yeah. well that, that, that I mean that's a good point though you see because he, he in a way goes it, it's quite a venerable route really for, sort of through excess to a point where it's all vanity and and what you're left with is a kind of empty husk of selfhood and that for me is is partly what makes his Falstaff so poignant, because it's as though he really inhabits Falstaff. Um, yes, I think you say that he's, he's, even though he scorned method acting, he didn't have any choice in that case. No, exactly right. And it is one of the only performances of his that feels like method acting, like he's just being the character rather than performing it. In Dickinson's case, there is this impulse to retreat and the inactivity is in some ways more literal than any of the other cases because at a certain point in her life she decides she's you know more or less not going to leave the homestead in in, in Amherst and she stays scratching away at this table in her bedroom and yet 
that becomes the base for her for the most extravagant travel to the outer edges of of the inner world and her poetry really is i think premised on that state of stillness which in a way was necessary for her to go that far out internally and Dave Foster Wallace the final one you talk about he I mean he didn't seem to find inactivity restful so what I mean did no. he? I mean, he was someone who was obviously deeply troubled yeah. by you know he alternated we suffered from you know depressive illness all his life and he we know that he would sort of swing between manic bursts of activity mm. and production and a sort of you know he just conk out in front of the television and not do anything for absolutely three weeks or... i think if 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 wallace was if i was more interested in the life than the work then wallace would probably have been next to the burnout chapter i mean i make the point that they all overlap in any case but from the perspective of life he he's rather like the burnout in the sense that there's this oscillation between manic productivity and an inertial collapse that leaves him catatonic with exhaustion and and world weariness. But I'm also interested in how that finds its way into the work of all these different characters. And in, in, in Wallace, what's so interesting is that he forges a style. And I think this has something to do with, with his extraordinary word count in which we give up on, if you like, the the cameraman's perspective, by which I mean the, the cameraman heightens and selects and emphasises those elements of reality and tells us to look at them, which means we don't look at something else. Now, to make that selection from reality is a kind of editing job on the world and most novelists then aren't able to write that much because they spend a lot of time choosing what they're going to leave out. Now, Wallace likes to foster the illusion, of course it is an illusion, but it's an amazing literary illusion that he's leaving nothing out. So particularly in Infinite Jest, he writes these breathless multi-clausal sentences. Nothing like Proust's, which are actually structured and organised and, and move between different layers of experience and coalesce and, and cohere. Wallace gets us to look at things in the course of describing an event or an experience or a person that are completely irrelevant a lot of the time to what happens next. You know, he'll he'll get us to, you know, be aware of what hairspray someone was but do you think that's kind of military or celebratory is it a sort of look there is you know the doors of perception are cleansed and all this stuff is coming in you know i'm assuming one of his students described him a noticing machine yeah you know look at the amazing million petaled flower of the world or is it a jesus christ i'm being overloaded by sensory information it's just too much out there to cope with i think it's more military than we allow for i think that there's a kind of sentimentalization which is part of, you know, Wallace hagiography that wants to celebrate this 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 noting, noticing machine as a kind of um, massive affirmation of this sort the, the 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 manifold of existence, and I think that that is perhaps something to do with the effect of the prose, which is indeed 
enlivening because in a sense we're not noticing machines so to be put in touch with one and to to be allowed to inhabit the mind of one for a while can be really invigorating and and exciting but i i also think that it attests to something more complicated going on something maybe celebratory and affirmative but also something that can't quite be bothered to sort of find in himself the authority to say this matters more than that or I, I want you to look at this and not that. That Yes, you've got a very um, sort of un- unexpected reading of, you know, This is Water, which is the sort of famous commencement speech he gave that's yeah. turned in, you know, spawned a million fridge magnets. Sure. Um, and you're saying, actually, it's a kind of desperate cry for, if only I thought like this, if yeah. only this was the... I think the reason it works so well and and is so effective is because it's not written out of the guru's sanctimonious Olympian height that says, look, this is how to think and to live if you want to be a better person. It's a kind of cry from the depths of somebody who's really not able to, to think and be that way, who, you know, experiences... I mean, he, he has that wonderful passage about being in the supermarket queue and getting irritated by the lemming in front of, of him. And he gets, he, he sort of, the, the fine grain of the emotional response seems to me to be rendered so vividly that it, in a way it, it, it overstates its case, that is, it it stops feeling all that universal. You think, actually, I don't get <laughs> that upset in the supermarket queue. You know, there, there's something about Wallace's own sense of exhaustion and rage, which is his and which then makes this sort of rendering of uh, a way out of it. Well, this, this does go maybe to all four of your sort of yeah. great exemplars, which is, you know, an obvious objection is one, we can't all be artists. Mm. You know, how is this a sort of route map for the rest of us? And the other one is to note that actually, I mean, though you could argue back and forth, by and large, these four people were either definitely mentally ill or certainly in that direction. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's true, isn't it? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're not really... One thing that a mentor in psychoanalytic training said to me, which I always found really helpful, is that you always have to remember as a psychoanalyst psychoanalyst, that you're not meant either to teach or to live an exemplary life. And these are certainly not models of exemplary lives. They're simply explorations of the relationship between inertia and creativity and, and really a way of suggesting that the relationship between them is more complicated than we allow. These are four very different ways in which inertia was mobilised creatively. But they don't teach us how to live. They didn't resolve the problem of the relationship between work and non-work. They just opened up really interesting questions about how it is we should live and I think that's what I'd really want the book to do to open up questions for us well to to open up questions about what makes a life worth living or not which you know sounds like 
a question we've been asking and have been asking since the beginning of time and there are a lot of titles competing with mine which would seem to be asking the same question. I'm trying to identify an obstacle in the way of taking that question seriously. There's a way we can ask the question which makes it just another agenda item to which we can offer a a sort of 12-step response and a neat formulation as to how to live a better life. For me, the reason the book avoids solutions, avoids trying to put across the idea of an ideal life is that I don't see myself or, or any individual as able to answer that question for us, but I think we can open that question. Let's see, it's, it's not not positively doing something, it's finding a way of not doing anything. Yeah, I, I guess so, yeah. I did, Bartleby the Scrivener did pop into my head at various yes, points yes. through the book, that idea of, you know, I would prefer not to yes. being a kind of great rejection. Yes. And do you think it's sort of possible to do that? I mean, one of the things, you know, you, it's interesting you said, you know, a 12-step programme. The addiction circles this book a little, I think, yeah. um, as not only a kind of, you know, something that, again, Wells and Wallace were... Sure. deeply involved with and Warhol possibly but also as a sort of metonym for exactly the consumer problems you discussed the idea of dissatisfaction and self-escape and yeah yeah and the shortcut I think that's what most interests me about addiction in a way that the sort of the the, the legend that most interests me in relation to addiction is is the legend of Faust which seems like a slightly arbitrary link to make initially maybe but what Faust does is he he puts a lifetime of work and of scientific endeavour into creating a science in which you wouldn't have to do anything anymore, in which your word was your deed and you could conjure up any gratification just by naming it. And this fantasy of working to a point where you could cut off work, which is after all the great sort of retirement fantasy you know if I do this till I'm 40 I can make my fortune and then you know swan off to Bermuda but addiction I think sort of partakes of the same fantasy that there is a shortcut to complete gratification that I want to sort of avoid the troublesome work of 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 thinking and building and growing something and getting to my gratification sort of realistically and incrementally and slowly. The thing that makes the addict so irresistible as a rebellious figure is that he cuts through all of that, well, Wells calls it the middle-aged attitude, you know, the sort of responsible achievement of my life goal. And it says, I want gratification here and now. It seems to me to be a big part of the inertial impulse to say I want the peace and the satisfaction of gratification right now yeah well to those of you who've been listening to this podcast on your lunch break get back to it time's up you've had your sandwich Josh Cohen thank you very much indeed thank you you were listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store we'd love to hear from you